Good morning and welcome back to Dark Histories from the Secret University. Many of these histories are dark in the sense of sinister or morbid, but this in fact is one that's dark in the sense of forgotten or overshadowed and at the same time glows with the fluffiest light of mouse melody. Some of you may have read my book, A Singing Mouse at Buckingham Palace. For those of you who haven't, the Singing Mouse of 1843 was a rapid hit in early Victorian London uh, after being discovered by a Mr. Alger of 24 Red Cross Square, Dewin Street, in what seems to have essentially been a slum dwelling. Uh, this character quickly went from rags to riches uh, when he rented out or sold the mouse uh, so that it could be heard by admiring crowds at the Cosmorama Rooms in Regent Street. And its fame spread so quickly that it was indeed summoned for a command performance before Queen Victoria's children, where it failed to sing, or at least failed to sing uh, in the first few moments of the performance. In following years and decades, mice continued their improbable warblings all over mainland Britain and in Ireland, France, Gibraltar, The Hague, Berlin, Moscow, Australia, America and India, as well as being a popular novelty in China. Along with the Japanese, the Chinese were also said to specialise in waltzing mice. But, as we have quite enough strangeness to cope with already, this all-singing, all-dancing variety will have to remain backstage during the present performance. How did the singing mice sound? Very lovely, according to a number of musical writers. They were specifically likened to canaries, linnets, larks, nightingales, bullfinches, wrens, swallows and reed warblers. Some auditors described their notes as being soft and low, like muffled birdsong, but others stressed they could be heard a good distance away, with one owner admitting that his lodger complained of being kept awake at nights by the whiskered virtuoso. Sometime before 1865, the Reverend R. L. Bampfield had a miniature choir of singing mice in his Essex rectory. Presently, the animals began to alter their song in response to that of a nearby canary, with one star performer managing to beat its feather driver with its song being superior in softness and delicacy, albeit weaker in volume. Those who had never heard a mouse sing, meanwhile, might have been impressed to know that one was kept as a pet by none other than Ilma de Murska. Through the 1860s and early 1870s, Ilma was one of the world's most famous opera singers, boasting not only a beautiful soprano, but a vocal range of three octaves. Ilma's singing mouse piped up for the journalist interviewing her in 1878. I quote, in response to a little chuckling on the part of its mistress, it chirruped and chatted like a bird for half a minute. In part, the quality of mouse song can perhaps be gathered from their value as professional entertainers. From the very start, singing mice made money. The public were paying one shilling a head to hear the quadruped Philomel in Regent Street in 1843 with children at half price. 
The Mr. Alger who caught the mouse which sang for Queen Victoria seems to have undergone a swift rags to riches transformation from impoverished slum dweller to a man, quote, on the high road to competence. Decades later, the man who caught the singing mouse in the basement of a London house became so celebrated that enthusiasts were soon pushing the lucky discoverer as a candidate for the office of mayor of his native town at the next election. Less romantically, the prices speak for themselves. Such was the fame of the lucrative mouse of Regent Street that, as early as October 1843, one John Wainwright took William Penton to Bow Street Court in order to regain a singing mouse which his nine-year-old son had foolishly sold for five shillings plus another mouse. Angrily deriding this replacement, Poe, it's a mere mouse, it can't sing a bit, Wainwright asserted that he had been offered £10 for his musical rodent. This might have been pushing it a bit, but those who were busy laughing Wainwright out of court that autumn may have thought again if they glanced over the for sale columns of British papers in following years. Several pounds was paid for one court in Cannon Street in Essex in 1844. In 1865, a Mr Scott of West London was asking £10 as his lowest price for a singing mouse. And two years later, another Londoner wanted £10, stressing as he did how much the canny buyer could make in exhibition fees. At this time, £10 could also buy you a Newfoundland bitch. And as early as the 1840s, a labouring man from Bow in London was exhibiting a singing mouse for profit. Whilst by 1850, a number of singing mice could be seen at Uxbridge Fair, along with the more typical learned pigs and performing canaries. Both wild and house mice were known to sing, and also on record as producing unexpected melodies were the rat, water rat and the shrew. Particular descriptions of singing mice sometimes highlighted striking physical features such as an unusually flat and broad nose. In 1875, in Montgomery, Alabama, the one which hurtled on its wheels, singing merrily all night, had great long ears like a donkey, whilst the one which entertained Cecil Fitch and his wife in the Finchley Road around 1897 had a small body and great ears somewhat like a bat's, only much larger. Why did mice sing? Throughout a hundred years, a favourite theory was that there was simply something wrong with them. The most popular problem cited was breathing difficulties. They were claimed to have bronchitis, inflammation of the larynx, malformation of the nostrils, or asthma. In 1937, the zoologist John Guy Dolman asserted that all dissected specimens were found to have respiratory problems. And just outside our period in 1955, one MB stated confidently, postmortems have shown that singing mice are always males and always there is an inflammation or other injury in the larynx. He or she was wrong on both counts, as it happens. This theory was summed up in the Oxford Companion to Music, no less, where the entry on singing mice sadly degraded their songs to a kind of artistic wheezing. Other pathologies were on offer. The naturalist Frank Buckland claimed in 1862 that the cause was a liver parasite. Buckland had dissections and the authority of Mr Bartlett of London Zoo to back this up. Dolman also cited a theory that singing was due to hysteria, and versions of this idea had been seen in previous decades. 
1868, Professor Carl Philipp Lieber of Berlin Zoo was impressed with the sustained flute-like notes of the mouse caged in his home, but insisted that it sings the more beautifully and its song is the more varied, the more excited it is, so that when in an agony of fear, when a cat, for instance, is behind it, it sings more loudly than any other time. Moving on from these dubious experimental ethics, we find a later Berlin specimen delighting visitors to the aquarium in 1884, its song being especially lively whenever any obstacle is in its way. It's hard to see why pain or stress would cause a mouse to sing rather than squeak, but the argument about breathing problems could well have fitted some cases. Did these sometimes cause a drop in pitch so that these mice fell within range of human hearing? Most of these pathological explanations have one interesting thing in common. Simply, they imply that the singing is an involuntary accident rather than a matter of controlled choice. This takes us back to a long-running bad habit of many animal researchers, where humans consciously enjoy their lives, skills and emotions. In animals, all this is automatic evolutionary stuff onto which some people foolishly project our higher human experience. So, was there anything more to mouse music than breathing problems or stress? In 1955, even the rather clinical MB was open-minded about the possibility that they sing for pleasure or from a feeling of contentment. And even that, the song is in the nature of a love song. About a half century later, scientists would start to show that this last was definitely true for male singing mice. Back in the Victorian period, few observers credited these animals with the ability to actually learn their songs. It may have been merely an accident that some mice were found in pianos. Compare, for example, a nest of five white mice being found in a piano in 1886. But others were convinced that mice deliberately imitated household songbirds. In 1863, an Inverness family was keeping a caged linnet, which enlivened their days with its melodies. Surprisingly, they also got nightly encores from the loft for... When the inmates retire to rest and all is quiet, the mice join in concert and sing in correct imitation of the linnet. If this northern chamber music might at first seem to be the pinnacle of mouse melody, a very southerly trio were clearly strong rivals in the 1890s. From Launceston, Tasmania, in 1899, a child wrote of how their family had. One winter lived in an old-fashioned house in the country, which had sliding doors between two of the rooms. Near these doors stood our piano, and every evening one member of the family used to play, while the others sat by the open fire and read or worked. One evening, we heard a wee noise among some music books standing by the sliding doors. The sound was like a tiny song at a distance. We listened, and as the sister at the piano still played, the tiny sound grew louder, and there appeared on one of the music books a little mouse. It sat on the edge of the book for a few minutes, then suddenly went out of sight behind the books. We knew that mice are fond of hearing music, so Mary went to the piano and began to play again, while the others watched for the little singer. Soon we heard again the sound of that little song, and there on the music books were two tiny grey mice, with bright eyes, listening with their pretty ears to the music. We all kept very still in our places for fear of frightening them. Soon they became more bold and jumped to the floor and capered about. 
And then there came a third mouse and joined the others in running up and down the books. And still we heard that little singing noise. Mary at the piano could not see the pretty little creatures as they were behind her. And if she stopped playing, they all ran away out of sight among the music or into one of the cracks. For several weeks, this was our evening amusement. One day, opening a door suddenly in the upper hall, I saw one of the little fellows fall over the stairway. I never thought he would be hurt, but he was found in the lower hall dead. After that sad fall, we never heard the tiny song with the music. The other two came out and danced to our sister's playing, but we always thought their dance was not so merry as when there were three little mice. Well, if you don't want this to be true, there's surely something very wrong with you. Whilst I confess to some doubt about the dancing, we should not forget our waltzing mice of China and Japan. Nor was it only mice who took singing lessons. Those who think that rats are the lowest form of animal life may be intrigued to hear of the one which was said to have taken lessons in singing, both from a piping bullfinch and from a goldfinch. Come 1903, the Daily Mail was asserting the recognised theory that all mice are potential vocalists and can learn to sing by imitation from singing birds. Along with the more left field idea that many mice possess an exceptional talent for mimicry, together with a keen sense of the ludicrous. By this time, mice also had another form of musical inspiration. Were they starting to sing to the radio? One belonging to Mrs. Kaiser of Mansfield, Ohio, had got the hang of this by 1937. For whilst singing happily enough without prompt, it became especially tuneful when the radio is switched on. Thus much for imitation and inspiration. If some of this seems to imply that mice enjoyed their singing, two further cases look especially joyous. In 1871, the amateur naturalist and minister Samuel Lockwood had in his New Jersey home a caged singing mouse named Hespy. Lockwood had the goodness to get two of this female diva's songs scored. But no less compelling is his description of one particular performance. Having just woken from a long sleep and eaten some favourite food, Hespy burst into a fullness of song very rich in its variety. While running and jumping, she rolled off what I have called her grand roll. Then sitting, she went over it again, wringing out the strangest diversity of changes by an almost whimsical transposition of the bars. Then, without an instant stopping the music, she leapt into the wheel, started it revolving at its highest speed, and went through the wheel song in exquisite style, giving several repetitions of it. So the music went on as I listened, watch in hand, until actually nine minutes had elapsed. The rest between the rolls was never more than a second of time. This feat would be impossible to a professional singer. And in fact, my professional musician friend, Matthew Nisbet, who's played at Glyndebourne and elsewhere, uh, notes that the scores look remarkably like kind of free jazz improvisations. We'll hear more about actually singing mouse music uh, at the end of this show. Now, all this looks rather like the sheer physical joy of life itself. But sometimes a mouse might sing in actual celebration of a particular event. Wait for this. Sometime before 1911, an Australian journalist was given a singing mouse by a collier who had recently been sharing his lunch down the line with the animal. Christening her Lizzie, our reporter 
kept her in a wire cage that stood upon the mantelpiece of my bedroom, and not thinking it quite fair to condemn her to solitary confinement, I trapped another mouse to keep her company. One morning I saw them giving one another a splendid wash and brush up with their tongues and claws, each mouse meekly submitted to being groomed in turn, and in fact they seemed to like the operation. When her family of blind, pink, blunt-nosed, naked mouselings was born, the mother went almost wild with excitement and joy. She darted in and out of her nest box, singing at the top of her voice, and carried a helpless baby in her mouth. Her song was very sweet, but consisted of only two notes, delivered with rapid alternation. She would sing even when sitting at rest in her bed, but when in active exercise, the notes were poured forth in a shrill, rapid stream, which one admirer compared to the sound of a distant nightingale. An old collier in whose room I once left the mouse declared that her singing was simply sublime. Despite the fact that Lockwood's paper was cited by none other than Charles Darwin, mouse music for many decades came and went, briefly appreciated and then forgotten, to the extent that in the late 19th century these creatures still had a semi-mythic status. All this would change dramatically, however, in the 1930s, so far the greatest decade in the long and profoundly fluffy history of mouse music. With Disney's own performing mouse, Mickey, freshly born in 1928, the living, breathing, singing mice of the Western world were about to hit the big time. On 23rd of February 1933, a letter to the Times asked, Can any of your readers give me information about the singing mouse? As I write, I have one performing behind the wainscot. It has a soft, sustained chirrup for all the world, like the water whistle or rossignol. Are they rare or why do they take to chirruping like this? The writer was none other than May Morris, daughter of William Morris, uh, and the animal was trilling away in her father's sometime home, Kemscott Manor in the Cotswolds. Meanwhile, across the pond, mice were finally getting taken seriously by science. In 1932, Lee R. Dice, professor of human genetics at the University of Michigan, published an article titled The Songs of Mice in the Journal of Mammalogy actively pursuing further experimental research on the subject for the next 20 years. Four years later, our miniature songsters were propelled into the stratosphere, not so much by science as by one of its greatest creations. For singing mice were about to get their 15 minutes of fame on US and British radio. The story begins in Chicago. Two weeks before Christmas, a mouse was captured in the Chicago Industrial Home for Children in Woodstock, Illinois, by manager Oscar Allred. Sadly, this was not the same Woodstock as the music festival. As Steve Silverman recalls, on Sunday, 13th of December, 43 children sat in perhaps unprecedented stillness as the newly christened Mickey sang for them at breakfast. This being America, a singing mouse was bound to become useful as well as beautiful. And so, on the evening of the 17th, 300 people were crowded into Woodstock's Merchandise Mart, waiting to hear what they hoped would be the first ever singing mouse broadcast for radio. No matter that, after a visit from Robert Bean of the Brookfield Zoo, Mickey had been found to be female and rechristened Minnie. A change of gender was nothing compared to the unnerving possibility that Minnie would not actually sing on her big night. 
both studio audience and listening public must have been anxious after hearing from the New York Times that the mouse had fallen silent Sunday afternoon, possibly due to getting its feet wet when drinking water. But despite announcer Don McNeil warning that the animal might keep silent, Minnie, held up in her cage at the mic by Allred, not only produced a sound oddly like a duet between cooing lovebirds, but thoughtlessly continued warbling long after the broadcast. Interestingly, Minnie recalls two details of our previous songsters. The idea of mice singing under stress seemed to be borne out here, for as Allred admitted, he had prompted Minnie by poking her with wire through the bars, explaining to the Tribune that she sings when she is disturbed. It's also been stated recently by Dimitri Blondel, a biologist at Duke University, that females in general might sing if they are territorial to ward off other females. Although photos of our singing mouse of the 1930s have not worn terribly well, thanks to the New York Times, we know that she was two inches long, has big ears, a tail three quarter of an inch longer than his body, and is grey with a white stomach, which vibrates when he sings. So under the impression here that our diva is a tenor, the Times nevertheless offers that recurrent emphasis on the large ears met with in previous specimens since the Victorians. If this already sounds like a cross between Disney and Charles Dickens, it's Christmas in the children's home, but our famous mouse is singing Silent Night, readers will be pleased to learn from Silverman that in following days, a mouse named Tiny Tim performed benefit concerts for hospitalised children in Ghana, Iowa. But at this stage, our new radio mice had barely cleared their furry throats. Some time before the decorations came down in the children's home, workers at the manufacturing plant of WF Vose and Jack Carstens, 600 miles south in Bloomington, Illinois, had been hearing strange melodies from behind the walls. Without the recent publicity from press and radio, they might never have known quite what they were listening to or what it could be worth. On 1st of January 1937, the animal was captured by Vos and Carstens and happily named Mickey in honour of his female counterpart. The factory sold the mouse to Gilbert C. Brown, who not only got Mickey up before the radio mic, but also had him appear at his own Irwin Theatre in downtown Illinois. On 16th of March 1937, American mouse music suffered minor setback when the singing mouse that had been giving concerts with a canary in Linton, Indiana, died from some unknown cause. We will never know how this animal might have fared in the national competition, which seems to run in late March and early April. What we do know, thanks to Silverman, is that Walt Disney himself was one of the judges, which may possibly have been why Mickey of Bloomington was announced winner on 11th of April. By this point, Mickey had been rechristened Mikey. To see why, we now need to head back across the Atlantic. With uncanny timing, Mouse music had been heard in early January in the home of Mr and Mrs Eddie at Devonport, Plymouth. After catching a live mouse who proved to be non-musical, they presently secured the right animal and named him Mickey. Having woken on the weekend of 9th to 10th of January to hear Mickey's voice coming from the trap, Mrs Eddie went on to tell a reporter of how she hopes Mickey will become a BBC and film star. With this kind of hard-headed management, Mickey surely could not fail. A further piece of luck was in store, however, for 
over in Wales at Christmas 1936, a Mr Gale of the coastal hamlet known as Mumbles in Swansea started noticing something unusual about his pet mouse, Chrissy. On the night before Christmas or thereabouts, it was not only stirring, but singing. Which again raises that familiar question, did this sound like singing only because of recent publicity? Had it been singing before this? Perhaps the cold weather theory has something to be said for it. At any rate, it seems to have taken some time for Gail to exploit this talent. In spite of Chris's December carols, her sound test did not occur until April, when she was held up to the microphone in a bottle at the BBC's Swansea studio and, quote, sang like a nightingale. Like certain predecessors, Chrissy showed some aptitude in a temporary nesting place, having gone missing briefly just after Christmas and presently been found hiding inside the piano. It must at this point be confessed that the BBC's involvement appears to have been catalysed by rather sharper minds at NBC, for the national competition won by Mikey in the US was merely one phase in a grand American scheme leading to the Transatlantic Mouse Singing Contest of May 1937, hence the rechristened Mikey with our American cousins here showing typical deference to their noble forefathers. With the date set for 2nd of May, the Canadian entrant was John the Toronto Tornado uh, and against Mickey, against Mikey and Minnie for the US and Mickey and Chrissy for Britain. Despite both these latter nations having two entrants apiece, it seems to have been only the British who used that de detail to orchestrate their secret weapon. For yes, Mickey and Chrissy, in a rare spirit of Anglo-Welsh harmony, I'm speaking on the day of the uh, England-Wales football match in the World Cup, perhaps greater than that shown by their human counterparts, were going to sing a duet. Before we come to the big day itself, it's worth adding that America could potentially have trumped this British double act, however incompatible Minnie and Mikey may have been. For in February that year, one D.R. Barton wrote in the journal Natural History of a find made by Dr. William Leroy Cahall and his wife in their New York apartment. The Cahalls had approximately 300 tropical birds given the run of the apartment. Uh, a lot of bird singing was going on. Uh, but in the midst of this conventional song, Mrs. Cahall one day heard an odd chirping coming from the storeroom housing the birds' grain sacks. Uh, and found three mice singing like canaries as they nibbled the seed. The cattles were probably too wealthy to bother putting their mice into a vulgar competition, but things were now ready to go. So without further ado, live from the studios of NBC and the BBC at 7.15pm, we have our singing mice not singing. After someone in London has the idea of turning off the lights and leaving our duettists alone in the BBC studio, however, matters notably improve. Over now to the London Times for its verdict of the following morning. The singing mice have sung. Now, even the unbelievers are convinced. Mice on both sides of the Atlantic have burst forth audibly into song. The broadcast yesterday evening, which was decide to decide the claims of England, uh, sick, that's what it says, Canada and the United States to possess the sweetest voice mouse in the English-speaking countries found time for a flourish of trumpets, a song in honour of the contesting mice and a good deal of chaff on the part of the announcers. Beside ourselves with pleasurable anticipation, we waited for the Canadian entrant to begin, but John, alias the Toronto Tornado, was temperamental and refused all offers, not a puff, not a peep, out of him. 
The English entry, British, never mind, was a duet between Mickey of Devonport and Chrissy, a Welsh mouse, which goes to show that national talents are not confined to men. This would have been, in any case, a tour de force, since other countries were putting up only solo or egotistical mice. Safe in the knowledge of their unique position, Chrissy and Mickey might have given some mediocre performers and let it go at that. But did they twitter half-heartedly, like mice who know their name is made in advance? They did not. They were British mice. Oh, they've changed now from English to British. They were artistic mice. They were mice of sensibility. So they piped away merrily in the most subtle harmonies, not a whit self-conscious. You just, not, just could not tell them apart. And that is saying a lot for duetists. America had trouble too. Minnie from Illinois had been a glutton for exercise lately, probably deliberately like film stars in the bad old days, when it was a convenient way of being hors de combat at the beginning of a picture they did not wish to make. Anyhow, she merely ran round and round and refused to open her mouth. Mikey from the same state made up for her. Here was mouse music at its gayest. All Mikey's notes were high ones delivered with such virtuosity and vigour that one sees in him the coming mouse Caruso. This is not, we may be sure, the last we shall hear of the singing mice. Mouse opera has been suggested and there is no reason why recitals by mice should not be popular. As I close up here, I will have to tell you that there is a bit of a scandal afoot in the judging of this contest, which was decided by the largest number of votes. And you don't have to be a mathematician to work out that America is very likely, therefore, to win the contest as it allegedly did. Can we actually rejudge uh, this famous competition? Well, we can if we can get the Library of Congress to give over the recording that was made by NBC as the BBC went and lost its. You can hear a mouse singing in a fashion by Tory Longdon uh, on a wonderful video if you can find that on YouTube. Thanks for listening. Do tune your ears to the forbidden frequencies of wonder. <laughs>